James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And uh, we've been talking about faith without works is dead. You might want to pick up a handy-dandy flyer. Uh, invite somebody to RUF. Um, we've got some great stuff this week with RUF. Thursday night, we'll be talking about that in a little bit here. But uh, tonight, it's about taming the tongue. And that's a hard thing to tame. And as I have been repeating, and I'll repeat, it, repeat this, but Martin Luther said that salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That if you truly know Jesus, if you truly uh, have recognized you're a sinner, and that you can do nothing to earn favor with God, and you just rest upon Him, and you see Him as beauty, beautiful like we just sang about, um, that means that the Holy Spirit is in you. You have, uh, you have the Helper with you. But that Helper is going to push you out to service. It's going to push you out. It's going to change everything about you. It's going to change your hopes, your dreams, what you desire in life, how you act, how you speak. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. That in really every area of your life, and especially this area of the tongue, and our words and how we use our words, that the Holy Spirit wants to change you and sanctify you, that part of yourself especially. Because as we're going to see in this passage, it's such a big part of ourselves. God has made us in His image to communicate. Just like God communicates with us, He's put us in His image so that we also communicate like Him. But we can either use our words for destruction, or we can use our words to build up and encourage and love. And so, um, that's what we're going to be talking about. If you ever read through the book of Proverbs you will be impressed and surprised by how many verses, how many chapters deal with the issue of language and tongue and words. And I'm going to read this before we look at this text, but this is Proverbs 13, 13 and 14. It says, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So we're going to do that. We're going to turn to James chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can look up here. So hear God's Word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Sends a reading of God's holy word. You know, our culture is deeply cynical, if you haven't noticed. I think college students especially uh, can be very cynical as well. And, uh, you know, as you think about the TV and the humor on television, um, you know, most sitcoms are based on this idea of being cynical and like laughing at other people. I mean, you know, in the older days, you know, of the 80s and 90s, Seinfeld, okay, then The Simpsons. I mean, it was all about poking holes in in society and all parts of culture. And, uh, and then, you know, um, as time has moved on, I mean, I'm sure there's people in here who, who, uh, um, watch Stephen, Stephen Colbert and, and the family guy and, and so forth. And to some extent, Conan O'Brien, I mean, things have not changed. I mean, people like to be cynical. People like to laugh. In fact, it's cool if you pick on everybody. You know, if you like pick on both those on the right and those on the left. I mean, this is kind of what you see in a lot of the, the sitcoms and uh, with Colbert and, and, uh, and also, like the family guy, they pick on everybody. They pick on the religious, they pick on the irreligious. They basically set themselves up as the authority. They're the ones who can judge. They're the ones who can be cynical. They're the ones who can say, hey, I know, I know what's going on. And you're very cool, as one of the, my RUF guys has said, you're very cool if you do that, if you can pick on everybody. I don't know, have you experienced that in college? Have you experienced that in the media? Have you experienced that... Uh, in the culture. I overheard a conversation on the campus the other day. I was sitting down in the co-op trying to study. Okay. And uh, I do a little eavesdropping here and there. And uh, uh, basically there was two. It was a guy and a girl sitting next to each other. I don't know who they were, but they were like, I was sitting looking this way. They were sitting looking that way, but we were like 18 inches apart. So it was pretty easy to hear what was going on. But basically the conversation went something like this. The girl said something like this to the guy. I'm sure glad we're not romantically involved because now we can just sit back and have fun with each other and make fun of people. That's what they were doing. They were kind of just talking. That's college. That's life. That's people. You know? We love to just sit back and make fun of people. How about you? Have you thought about your words? Have you thought about what you say? Um... Are you cynical? Are you a critic of everything? Um, if someone put an MP3 player like this around your neck for 24 hours a day and then um, replayed that in front of large group or, or wherever, <laughs> like how would that make you feel? Like I mean, I'm just saying, like as an example, if it was me, I wouldn't feel good at all. I'd want to jump and bury myself underneath, underneath the floor. You know, I'd be ashamed of myself. I'd be ashamed of my comments. I'd be ashamed of gossip. I'd be ashamed of tearing other people down. Um, how about you? Have you thought about your words? Have you thought about your tongue and what you say? Have you, have you, are you a person that just constantly talks? Are you a person that listens? 
Are you a person that asks people questions and then before they can get the answer out, you're already asking another question? I find myself doing that. Not really listening. Not really being deeply concerned about people. And what the tongue and what our words tell us ultimately is that we are hopeless if it's up to us to control it. Because the number one thing James is saying here is you can't control it yourself. You cannot exercise tongue control. But there is hope. And so we're going to just look at this. Uh, We're going to look at our words. First, our words are not neutral. There's truth or falsehood. Secondly, our words have powerful consequences. And thirdly, we can't change our words, but somebody can. Okay? So, the first thing is this. James wants to point out here, right in the beginning, that our words are not neutral. That what you say matters. That some things are true, and some things are false in our world. And he's particularly talking about for the leaders in the church, for those who are teaching the Bible, for those who are speaking for God, that they they better speak in a way that is true to what God has taught. That's what it, it's, it strikes fear in me. But here's what he says, verses uh, 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brother. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So he sets the argument off talking about teachers in the church. Uh, Talking about how what you say matters. That there's going to be a judgment. That some things are true and some things are false. And so when it comes to teaching the Bible... You know, there's just all kinds of things out there. I mean, you turn on your TV, if you, if you, like, have ever seen, like, Trinity Broadcasting Network or any kind of Christian, I mean, you'll see all kinds of crazy people. You'll see purple hair. You'll see, you know, just lots of different, different theologies that are being espoused. You'll, you'll hear health and wealth gospel. You'll hear. So the question is, is everything true or is everything false? And Jesus, said constantly, you know, beware of the false prophets. It's a constant theme in the Scriptures um, that some people will not stay with the truth. That some people will leave it. uh, That they will slide away. In Timothy, Paul warns about the false teachers. People uh, teaching um, because people just want to have their ears tickled. And they just want to hear the good aspects of theology, the things that make me feel good. And so in much of the church, this is a big problem that um, the Scriptures are not really taught in their entirety that people pick and choose. And so you might not hear things like, you know, God is holy and that God judges sin and that there's a real place called hell. Uh, you might not ever hear those kind of things that are actually taught in the Bible. You know, and so if you're here tonight and you're not sure about those things, I'm glad you're here. Um, because we want to be truthful. We want to be honest with what the Scripture teaches. I hope that if you're here tonight and you've never been here before, that you understand that RUF's a place where we're going to come and we're going to talk about the Bible. And, and, I, and we're not going to try to um, code it in some way to fake you out. But we're going we're gonna to tell you this is what it says. And you know, just like you've, you sign up for a calculus class, I hope they're going to talk to you about calculus. So, with RUF, we're going to talk about the Bible. And we're going to talk about the truth 
of what we believe in there. And we're glad that you're here and we want you to come along and explore it with us and be there with us. But there's a lot of picking and choosing out there in the Christian culture. Um, you know, and so people have shifted in their theology in lots of ways. And so Paul says to Timothy later on, he says, watch your life and your doctrine carefully. Watch your life. Are you living it out? And also your doctrine. And doctrine is just simply the boiled down truth of the Scripture. You know, doctrine is is what we might call theology. It's like if you put a bunch of biblical passages together and you put and you get them out there, we come up with a thing called the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. You'll not find in the Scriptures one verse that says um, that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you'll hear all those passages talking about the Trinity and so the church believes that this is who God is. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's doctrine. That's taking the Bible, the big picture, trying to understand it and boil it down and say, this is what we believe. I'm going to hang my hat on that. The Trinity. I believe in that. And really, that's what all the, the church creeds are. You know, we, If you go to a church, you might say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in you know God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. You know all of those creeds and all those statements are doctrines that have been brought about as people look at the scriptures and they say this is what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. Let's put this together and make a creed and say, hey, we believe it. Let's hang our hat on it. We believe that. That's doctrine. But people get away from that. It's easy to get away from it. And it's easy to slide. It's easy just to say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. And so, getting back to this, there's some things that are true scripturally to teach, and there's some things that are false. And uh, communication can be true or false. There's absolute truth is what Jesus is talking about in the Scriptures. And that goes totally against our culture. Um you know, our culture says there's, there's truth when it comes to science. Truth when it comes to math. 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's truth in physics. 9.81 meters per second squared is the rate of gravity. Is that true? All right. See, I still remember a little bit of that. Engineer. So, force equals mass times acceleration. I mean, nobody's going to doubt that. You know, because that's scientific. That's something we can, you know, define and we can do a theorem. But what what the Bible is saying from Genesis to Revelation is that when it comes to spiritual things, religious things, that there is absolute truth there too. Just like there's truth in, in science and truth in math, there's also truth biblically. Our culture doesn't like that. Our culture says that when it comes to religion, it's, it's not absolute truth. How can you say that one thing is true for all people, all times, every culture, everywhere? That's just, that's ridiculous. That's, that's, you know, that's, uh, arrogant, you know? But that's what, that's what we see. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but, but by me. He didn't mean just those people right there at that time, but he was making absolute statements. So how do we get this? I'm just going to briefly go through, um, how do, why do Christians believe in absolute truth when it comes to words? Why do we believe in absolute truth when it comes to words? It's because we believe in a God who declares himself to be true. This is a circular argument. 
Okay. But we believe that God has created everything, that we did not exist except He existed first, that we come from Him. We believe that He has uh, not just created the entire world and expressed Himself in the Revelation. Romans 1 says, His invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen from what has been made so that people are without excuse, so that they should know that there is a God just by looking at the creation, just by looking at, wow, look at the human body. It's amazing. It's a system. Blood pumps around. I suck in air and it goes through my lungs and oxygen goes into my blood system and I can walk and run and I can think and I can... Like, that's amazing. It's a system. Okay? That there's a design. All these kind of things. So, like, the Bible is saying that by that, we should be amazed and sit back and say, God exists. But the, but the biblical answer is, we don't do that because we suppress Him out of, the, out of the picture. But, God in His grace still reveals Himself specially. And He breaks into creation. He speaks. He doesn't just leave us in the dark. Francis Schaeffer, theologian, apologist, said that God has revealed Himself in time and space. Basically, He he's breaks in, you know? He breaks in and He says, I am real. He speaks through the prophets. He makes covenants with people like Abraham and starts a whole tribe of people. There are many of those people connected right here at this school. God breaks into His world. He creates covenants and promises. He sends the prophets again and again. Ultimately, He sends Jesus and reveals Himself. Jesus comes... He doesn't just say, hey, I'm God. He displays Himself as God. He does miracles. He walks on water. He turns loaves into bread to feed 5,000. He raises people from the dead. He does all the things we would expect God to do. He proves in these signs that yes, He is true. And then His Word and His life all mesh together. That's why we believe it's true. So, what I'm getting back to is we believe it's true based on the evidence. Based on the historic record of Jesus and His work. And so, the Scriptures really are this revelation of God's covenant actions and His covenant words that all relate. And so, when we say we believe in absolute truth, it takes a little bit to unpack it. But we're not saying we just believe in the dark. It's not like jumping off a cliff in the dark. We're saying that, look, God has revealed Himself for, you know, uh, in 1600 years, so to speak, from the beginning of the Scriptures to Revelation. That was about the period of time that He continues to work. And, you know, we can believe now that God works because He works through people. And we can see the church and Him building the church and people still being impacted. And so He's revealing Himself all these ways. So this is what we believe. But, this is a long point, I know. Stay with me. So that's the biblical truth that we believe, but here's the problem. There's also serpent. There's also the devil that the Scriptures talk about. And the devil's primary goal is to not believe this. He comes into the garden. He says, oh, to Adam and Eve, that was God's words. But did he really say that? And this is what the serpent does. And so, this is where falsehood comes in. Okay, before the serpent, before the fall, no falsehood, all truth. Believing in God, having a wonderful relationship with God, not doubting Him at all. Serpent comes in, everything changes, the fall into sin. Everything's affected, our mind's affected, our reasoning's affected, our knowledge is affected. Okay, so 
Now, this is where falsehood... So we have Satan's ideas, <laughs> the deceiver, Jesus calls him, the father of lies. And this is really where... This is the fountainhead of all falseness. And then, since we are fallen now, our own minds now are not totally true. So we, our own minds are clouded by sin. Our own minds don't really get it. So we're fighting this battle a couple ways. The serpent, Satan... We're fighting our own fallenness, our own mind that's suppressing God and doesn't really want to have anything to do with His truth. We're, and we're also fighting the culture that's also, also fallen and affected. And so, enter in all these false ideas and you, we still have God's truth. But you see the battle that's going on here. This is the battle that we're in. The battle for truth or the battle for falsehood. And so, this is where we are. Um, and so that's why there's false teaching out there for all those different reasons. And so, the, but the, the first point here is we have to worry about this idea that there are some things are true and some things are false when it comes to our words, that they matter. And so, the question is, we're called to be discerning. As believers, as teachers of the Bible, we're called to be discerning. As listeners to the Bible, we're also called to be discerning. Wherever our place is, wherever our station is, we're called to be discerning. Because we know that not everything we hear is true. And so, I go back to Acts. You guys remember the Bereans that Paul was teaching in Acts? And uh, it says that they were a noble people because they were very biblical in Acts chapter 17, and, they, and when Paul preached the Word, preached the Gospel to them, it says that they received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So how do we determine whether something's true or whether something's false? Well, it goes back again to the Scriptures. Is it in accord with the Scriptures? Is what's being said in accord with the Bible? I know that it might sound really simple and it might sound really stupid, but that's how that's where it goes. That Paul is saying there's consequences, that there's going to be a right and wrong, that people are going to be judged with greater strictness based on these things, their words. And if their words are true and if they're in accord with the Scripture, um, there's going to be fruit and there's going to be goodness and there's ultimately going to be reward there's going to be God's blessing and if not then those things are not going to last so are you discerning uh are you reading your bible are you developing a mind of truth are you developing your theological discerning doctrinal mind seriously not saying that you know, theology is just like biology. Theology is just the study of God. You know, biology is the study of plant life and things that are living, right? Bio, right? Huh? Yeah. So, I mean, theology, don't, don't get all freaked out about it. It's just the study of God. And where do we find God? In His Word. We find Him in the Scriptures. And so, this is a call to realize that there is truth, there is falsehood. We come back to the Scriptures to be discerning. Uh, and that's what we look to. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to stay in line with it. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. 
in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Timothy had the good deposit of the Word and the truth. And so Paul is saying, guard it. Because it can slide. It can slide. There's a lot of people that start out well. Ministers that start out well. I believe the Bible. I believe it's God's Word. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's true. And then 30 years down the line, they left. They left. It's slippery. They spent a lot of money. Seminary. Theology. They got a huge libraries. And it slips. Satan is deceitful. Our flesh is deceitful. Stay in the Word. Second thing. Our words have consequences. Powerful consequences. They, ch- they can change everything for good or bad. And you guys have, I'm sure, experienced this in relationships, in your families, in the words that have been said to you, in harsh arguments that have gone on in your past, in your life. Words are powerful. Words matter. They affect everything. And so, James is is saying that they're strong, they're powerful, and he gives like three real-life illustrations Okay, to make the point. He talks about a bridle and a horse. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. You know, here's a great big animal. All it takes is a bridle in the mouth and that big animal is going left or right or wherever we want it to go. He talks about a rudder and a ship. Verse 4 and 5, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. You know, it's just this small part guides everything. It changes everything. Then he talks about a spark and a forest fire. The tongue is like a small fire that set a forest ablaze. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And a tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. A tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So this is like a negative example of how powerful the tongue is. But you know what? It is. You know that phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt? I don't know who thought that up. Do you guys even You know that phrase. Where, where is that from? Like, who is who said that? Because that's, like, false. Okay? I mean, you can kill me, knock me over, you know, chop my arm off, and I'll, I'll hopefully I'll get over it. But, like, if, but if somebody says, you know what? You know, that was a horrible sermon tonight. I'll remember that for three years. I mean, just, you know, that's okay. You should be truthful to me. I'll listen to you. (laughs) Be truthful, okay? Um, But you know what? Yeah, words do hurt. You know, things that are said to us, I mean, they get deep. And we can't forget. Um, We can't forget things. I mean, there's a power in in words. Um, And there's a power in ideas, too. And as I was just thinking about this, um, all the destructive dictators of the 20th century, okay, like how did they get to that point? You know, how does a Hitler become a Hitler? You know, and ultimately, like, you know, it's from ideas. Like it says that he studied Nietzsche a lot, you know, and he kind of got 
into his philosophy and, and started thinking about those ideas, those words. And they had powerful effect on him. Stalin with Karl Marx. Mao, again, again with Marx. Communism, some 40 million are killed in the Cultural Revolution in China. I mean, these are like ideas that people have that's like a guy adapts and he says, hey, this is a good idea. This, this, this might be true. Let's see if, let's put this into practice. And it's huge destruction. And so you have Hitler, you know, and the ideas of social Darwinism and Superman, um, Nietzsche's idea of a Superman and creating the perfect race. And next thing you know, they are planning on uh, a Holocaust to take care of the Jews in Germany. I mean, that's where it went. That these ideas, that these words that were written and talked about played themselves out in terrible action and bloodshed and the Holocaust. Um, what you say matters. What you write matters. Words matter. Uh, it turns countries to war. It turned Europe um, to destruction. I, this verse in Proverbs, I felt like this could be like for Hitler. Worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of extreme. I mean, you're going from like individuals, now you're talking about, you know, Nietzsche and Hitler and, you know, Holocaust. But get... there's a process. <laughs> there's a process that happens in people. And when, you, when you're giving in to falseness and you're giving in to the lies of Satan and you're giving in to the lies of uh, your own heart and the lies of culture, things get messy. They get blown apart. And in relationships, we see the same thing. Two friends are getting along great. Then, you know, something happens. Words are said. Gossip starts. Rumors start. And all of a sudden, those friendships are gone. Uh, many of you have probably experienced that. Just blown apart by words. Blown apart by a rumor on Facebook. Uh, people's reputations slammed. Churches torn apart by false rumors or ideas. I mean, this ha this is not like never happens. I mean, it happens all the time. Raise your hand if you've been in a church split. Okay, I mean, you don't have to do that. But the point being is, is, is it happens. And it happens because a lot of times stuff doesn't get dealt with properly and there's not proper communication and proper confrontation in love and speaking the truth in love and there's just lots of side arenas that are playing and destroying people. Um, and so our words control the direction of life, controls relationships. They can, can control uh, churches. It can control countries. It can control governments. I mean, words, ideas are powerful. <clears throat> and uh, I was watching one of these uh, 30 by 30 ESPN um, documentaries. You guys ever seen that? I promise it won't be a 30 by 30 documentary for documentary night um, this Saturday if you want to come to that. But Reggie Miller. Did anybody see that one about Reggie Miller? Okay, he played for the, the Indiana Pacers and he was known as basically a Hall of Fame trash talker. Okay, because his, his game, he was a great shooter. He was a great three-point shooter. But his main game was trash talking his opponent. And so in one of the... Uh, 
Eastern Conference Finals back in like 97, or I don't know, back in the 90s. It was the Pacers against the Knicks. And the Knicks had a point guard by the name of John Stark. And Reggie Miller knew how to push the buttons just the right way to get old John Stark riled up. And so basically that was how he took John Stark out of the game. John Stark just couldn't like let it go over him. John Stark got riled up. John Stark starts swinging. John Stark gets thrown out of the game. That's what Reggie Miller wanted. And John Stark, I mean, he couldn't help himself. Again, though, you know, we in our sinfulness know how to do that as well, to push each other's buttons. You know, think about your roommates. Think about people living in close proximity to you, like your family. Why is it so hard to love your family? Why is it so hard to like be nice to them, be kind to them? Why is it that they rub us the wrong way? And we lash out and we can't control ourselves. It's because our hearts are, are sinful. It's because we, deep inside we can't change ourselves. Deep inside we can't... When somebody says something to us, we can't just be quiet or be loving because our very righteousness is based on defending ourselves. We have to justify ourselves. We have to make sure they know that the story is right and who we are. And so we lash out and we talk and we say things that we shouldn't say. And so this is the last point. Our words are only changed for good by a heart change. Like we can't change our heart. We can't, can't tame it. This is verses 7 to 10. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Um, by the way, I saw a rat on a leash on McKeldon Mall the other day uh, when it was like a warm day, I think on Thursday. It was a rat. It was like... I mean, it had like a collar and the whole thing, and the person was walking the rat. No, why are you missing a rat? Okay, uh, but it had a, it was a white rat, had a long tail, and I was like, I kind of like laughed and you know went by. Um, all right, you can tame a rat, but you can't tame your tongue. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, Paul Miller, in, in, the, in a Sonship Discipleship course, he likened the tongue to a dipstick into your heart. And he basically said that the heart, or that the tongue is like the spiritual thermometer to our lives. That out of our heart, the issues of life flow. Out of our heart, our mouth speaks. And so, you can see if you're believing the Gospel or not by what you say. So if I'm afraid and I'm not trusting Jesus, I speak fear. If I'm worried, I you know speak anxiety or a nervousness. If I'm if I'm critical or if I'm complaining about life, ultimately I'm believing that you know what God's not good. Do you you know you're not in control? I know better than you, God. How can you leave me in this place? You know. Uh, if I'm tearing other people down, if that's coming out, that's probably because. I want to make myself feel better. Jesus is not enough. I got to put you down so I feel better. Everything's gospel related as we speak. We're either believing in Jesus and resting in his righteousness 
and then able to speak out of that. Or we're trying to gain our own righteousness and we're speaking out of trying to justify ourselves to other people. Okay? Think about that. Do you see that in yourself? Why do people lie? Why do we lie? Why does the kid, you know, come to school and tell the teacher, you know what? Um, I, you know, it was a strong wind today and uh, the, blew my homework away, you know? And I don't know where it is. Can I have a pass? You know, instead of saying, you know what, I was just really lazy, wanted to watch a lot of TV last night, and uh, I just didn't do my homework. So, on the mercy of the teacher, please let me have another day. Instead, we lie or say something else. Why do we lie? Because we want to justify ourselves and say we're not that bad. You know, we're not that lazy. We can we can do it. Everything comes from what are we resting in? If I was truly resting in Jesus and was truly acknowledged I was lazy, I would just like be honest and say, here it is. I, I was lazy. Forgive me. I will try better next time. You know, I'm trusting in Christ. I don't have to lie. I can be honest with you and tell you I messed up. I can own it. Um, and so, this passage you know, can leave us hopeless as we think about this because it's so hard. We can't tame the tongue. It's impossible. But and there's lots of negatives. Um, but he gives this last illustration that I think is kind of the key to the passage. He says this about... He talk, starts talking about a water source and fig trees and grapevines. And so, in 11 and 12, he says, "...from the same mouth come blessing and cursing." My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce springs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's going on? I think he's, what he's saying is the source has to be changed. The source has to be changed. In other words, the heart has to be changed in order for the mouth then to speak goodness. That out of the, the heart flows the issues of life. That we need our insides transformed. That we, you know, that fresh and salt water don't both come out of the same place. That we need to have our heart purified so that fresh water springs forth. And so, he's getting at our heart. How can our hearts be changed? Our hearts can only be changed by the Gospel. Our hearts can only be changed by Jesus. And I don't see Jesus in this passage. Okay? But we know that the whole Scriptures uh, are about Jesus. And James was the brother of Jesus. Okay? He knew Him well. And as you think about Jesus, and you think about His speech, and who He is, and what He has done for us, that is what changes our hearts. We cannot change our hearts in our own strength or by willpower or by putting a muzzle on our mouth or duct tape over our mouth and walking around. Have you ever just tried to like be quiet? There was some guy that tried to be quiet, like be quiet for a whole year or something. Wasn't there? Um, was that? In the Middle Ages, I think monks would do that. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. Um, but the gospel can change our hearts. Okay? And, you know, as you think about the gospel and what Jesus did, I was looking at Isaiah 52 and 53. 
And it says this about Jesus. Isaiah is looking forward 700 years. He says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He was silent so that we might be silent. He was silent because we were the ones speaking blasphemy at Him. You know, ultimately, we were the ones because of our sins, saying, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. We want to live life like our... our we don't want your justification. We want our justification. But Jesus became silent and went to the cross so that we would be healed and so that our ultimately our tongues would be silenced. In Isaiah 52, it says that kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. What's going what's gonna to make kings arrogant, proudful like us shut our mouths? It's when we are ultimately humbled and we ultimately see that we deserve that cross, we deserve that judgment because of our mouth, but Jesus took our sin for us and died for us so that we wouldn't have to. So our mouths would be cleansed. You know, Isaiah talks about I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. It shut His mouth. Because He saw then the Lord come and take the coal from the altar and touch His mouth and purify Him and cleanse Him. It was a picture of the Gospel. From the altar, the seraph took the coal and cleansed His lips and made Him whole. This is what the Gospel does to us. The Gospel changes our hearts so that we don't have to get self-justification from argument, from criticizing, from putting ourselves above other people, from being cynical, from not, uh, you know, just just being argumentative all the time because we got to prove ourselves. We can be silent and listen to people because Jesus has ultimately listened to us. Jesus has ultimately took our burdens. If anybody could have been, uh, could have truly opened His mouth, it was Jesus. He could have judged. He could have said, that's it. You guys are sinners and you're going down. He could have done that. But He didn't. He was silent. Let me pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for how You are the One who can tame the tongue through the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. Lord, as I think about my words and my action. Boy, I don't think I listen well. And Father, I pray that You would awaken us to our tongues. That You would awaken us to whatever is going on in our hearts. Whether we're complainers, whether we're worriers, we're anxious, whether we just put down people. Lord, would You get in there and do Your work by Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.